Live from the Old Church Concert Hall in Portland, Oregon, it's Portland Story Theater's Urban Tellers. May the narrative be with you. Well, in 2007, the economy collapsed, and with it went my job. I was terrified. Like, I've been working since I was 16. I've never been unemployed, but you know, okay, no big deal. I've got a Bachelor's of Arts. I got a great work history. How hard can this be? So in my eighth month of this grueling job search, I was beginning to feel like I'm not going to make it. I was feeling almost like I had caused it. Like when I lost my job, I took everyone else down with me. And I was terrified, you know, just not knowing what to do. And that's when I got a phone call from a placement agency. And they said, hey, we have a two-week gig at a specialty hospital. I'm like, yes, great, I'm on board, thank you so much, I, I, thank you. And I hang up and I'm like, yeah, what do I know about healthcare? I mean, really my history was theater administration, organic baking, and a short stint selling stainless steel and aluminum. <laughs> but, and it was an awesome job, but I needed that job. So I show up on Monday to what's called an LTAC, which is long-term acute care. Basically, you're a little too healthy for the emergent level of care that a hospital gives, but you're way too sick to go to any kind of rehab. Boom, you go to an LTAC. And I walk in, and I'm all excited, and I meet the, this lovely woman, this RN case manager named Margie, who I'm going to help, who looks a little less than excited about my work history with no health care in it. But I say, look, there's something I can do for you. Just give me a chance. And she does. And at the end of the first week, she goes, see you next week. And I'm like, oh, God, yes, you will see me next week. I will be here. And then another week rolls by and another week. And suddenly I find, oh, my God, I've got a place in healthcare. These doctors, these nurses, the therapists, the RN case managers, the social workers, they can put Humpty Dumpty back together again and get them safe. Me, I can do administrative stuff. I can take that off their plates so they can spend more time with patients and family. So five weeks in, I get hired full-time, and I was so grateful. A couple of days after I got hired, a new patient showed up, and they instantly asked Margie to come to the room because this was going to be a very difficult patient. So Margie heads to the room, and I follow her like a duckling because she saved my life, so I'm going to follow her everywhere. And we get up there, and the charge nurse says, okay, the patient is homeless. We know nothing about this patient. They were found down, non-responsive. They had been beaten up. And, um, you know, the only thing keeping him going is a mechanical respiratory ventilation machine and or a vent. That is what is breathing for him. That's it. He's in a coma, hasn't come out. So I turn and look at the patient. And his face just hit me. I mean, he didn't have any of the leathery skin, the broken capillaries, the bulbous nose of someone who drunk themselves into oblivion. What he had was just a very kind face. And I don't know what it is about hospital beds. It doesn't matter how big you are. When you get in this hospital bed, you just look so small. And he was just laying there, so small, totally vulnerable, and just utterly alone. And it just hit me. It's just like, you know, those moments where your gut cramps up and your heart gets a little knocked to the back of it. 
small, vulnerable, utterly alone. That was my childhood. And even though I had sisters all around me, absolutely alone and so unable to protect them from what was happening. And I knew I just had to help the guy. So I turned to the charge nurse and I said, okay, what do we know about him? And the charge nurse says, well, here, and hands me an envelope. And Margie says, you want to take this one? And I'm like, yeah, give me a shot. Let me try. So I go to my office. I open up the envelope. Inside is this small, just totally worn brown wallet. You know, it's so old that it almost feels like fabric. It's just so soft. And I open up on the inside, and there is a photo ID from what appears to be a really small town way in the south of the US. And there's also a Medicare AB card, which means this man had it together enough to get insurance. And that was it. So I look in the billfold area, and there's a piece of paper in there folded out. And I take it out, a phone number. I'm like, okay, got a clue. So I call the number, and a woman answers and says the name of a bar. And I say, hey, I'm Debs, and I'm calling about, and she goes, oh my god, are you calling about Mr. Smith? And for all of us here tonight, we're just going to call him Mr. Smith. And I said, yeah. And she goes, we've been so worried. He's been gone for two months, and he's a regular. Is he okay? Now, Mr. Smith is so not okay. And I so cannot tell this woman his condition. So I use the code we use in hospital, and I hope to God none of you ever hear this code, and it goes like this. I can't tell you how he's doing, but I need to find his family urgently. Do you know anything about this person? And the woman on the other end just goes, oh no. She's like, you know, he's a really nice man, and I don't know anything about him. He didn't talk about himself a lot. But I'll tell you what, let me, let me ask around. Let me ask some of the other regulars and see if they know anything about him. I'm like, yeah, could you do that? That'd be so helpful. And she goes, I'll do that. I'll call you in a couple days. She goes, look, Mr. Smith was such a nice man. She goes, you know, he would just come. He'd nurse a couple beers, just hang out and talk. And on nights when I had to close a bar by myself, he would stay, help me put the chairs up, sweep the floor. And then he'd walk me to my car to make sure I got safely home. He's a really nice man. So we hang up, and I go to Mr. Smith's room. And I go, hey, I talked to your friend. She's really sorry that you're, you've been injured. And she's going to look around and see if she can get, find your family. So hang on, Mr. Smith. Let's see if we can find someone for you. Well, two days later, she called. And she said, you know, I talked to everyone. He never talked about himself. Everyone told him stories, but he never said anything. So I don't know anything, and I'm so sorry. I said, you know, that's okay. And she's like, can I come visit him? And I'm like, of course you can come visit him. So that door went and closed. But I was determined, so I went back to that wallet. I pulled out his ID. I got on the computer, Google searched, found the phone number for the sheriff in that small town and called. And like, I worked in theater, arts, fundraising. I can pitch something if I want to sell it. <laughs> so I get on the phone, and I'm like, there is this very nice man at my hospital, and I desperately need to find family, and can you really help me? I'd really appreciate it. And the sheriff's like, well, ma'am, I'll give it my best. What, what do you got? So I give him the address, and he goes, okay, that's not far from where I live. I'll drive over there, and I'll, and I'll check around, and I'll call you back in a few days. I'm like, 
thank you so much. So back up, I go to Mr. Smith's room. I'm like, hey, okay. I called the sheriff. Don't worry, you're not in trouble. But he may help us. And then I started noticing something kind of weird. Every morning when I'd walk by the room, like, I'm not the only one talking to Mr. Smith. The man is in a coma. I don't know if he's registering everything, anything, but everyone talks to him. I walked by one morning, a nurse was putting up a new IV and talking to him, and she's just like, oh, sweetie, I hope you had a good night's sleep last night because, oh, my three-year-old, she had an ear infection. I got no sleep at all. So this nice man, his face, he just had that kind of face. You just wanted to rest your words with him, and you knew they were safe. Well, a couple days later, the sheriff calls back, and he says, ma'am, I am sorry. There was nothing. When I went to the address, there was a woman who had been living there with the same last name, but she had moved, and no one knew where, couldn't remember anything about her, and I ran him through all the systems, and nothing came up. So the door is closed, and I felt awful. And I went into Margie's office, like a confessional. I went in, and I was like, I couldn't find anything about Mr. Smith. I am so sorry. And she's like, oh my god, you tried harder than the hospital. At least you found someone who came to visit him. And she's like, don't beat yourself up. You did as best as you could. But you know, sometimes that never just feels like enough. So it's getting close to Christmas at this point, and everyone's beginning to bat around the idea that they're going to have to have an ethics consult. This is where the discussion happens about removing vents for people who have no chance of coming back. But you know, at this point, everyone's talking to him, so they decide to push that decision off till after Christmas. So a couple days later, I brought him a poinsettia. I just didn't want his room so empty. And I put it in his room, and I went out, I told the nurse, I'm like, I didn't find family, that's from me. And then a few days later, this little Christmas tree appears in the room, and then within a week, a little stocking was hung on his vent with care. And when the carolers came through this, the hospital I worked at, they all stopped and sang for Mr. Smith. Well, proving himself to be the gentleman that we'd been told, Mr. Smith passed away a few days after Christmas. He died before they had to have the ethics consult. And he also died on the final day that Medicare paid for his bed. <laughs> on the day he died, I went into his room and I closed the door. And I pulled up a chair. And I sat down next to Mr. Smith. And I just kind of sat there with him. And it was so quiet. And his face was so peaceful because it was like the absence of pain and worry, kind of the absence of the weight of life. And I just sat with him, and I just hoped some things for him. I really, really hoped that somewhere in him he could feel that he was, when he was with us, he was safe, that he was warm, he was clean, he was taken care of. And I hoped all of us chattering at this poor man, that that sunk in a little bit too and that he knew he wasn't alone. And I just stayed with Mr. Smith for a while till the energy kind of began to dissipate from the room because I really felt like any man who stays late and helps a bartender go to her car so she can get safely home, he deserves someone to sit with him and wait with him 
till I was sure he got safely home. 